0: Oh, good stuff. Well, now you've welcomed each other. There's something powerful in saying names, isn't there, that goes beyond just the generic greeting? Um, in fact, I tip my hand a little bit, but those who are parents here, particularly when you start to become new parents, uh, <clears throat> see if you agree with me that one of the most excruciating parts, details, things to figure out of being a new parent isn't necessarily picking out, you know, the color for the room in the nursery. Not necessarily, you know, registering for all the great stuff you hope to get at, uh, at the baby shower and all that stuff. You know, it might not even, the worst thing might not even be the, you know, nine months gestation, hours of labor, you know, you know, how many times have I heard that? Um, all right, maybe physically that's a tough one, but uh, psychologically. Emotionally, one of the most difficult things to do when you become a new parent is pick the name. Those of you who aren't yet married or haven't gone through the process of uh, of having a child, maybe you won't believe me, but we find ourselves having arguments about things we never really knew were important until that moment. Find yourself doing all this contingency planning and like Bobby Fischer thinking a thousand moves out in chess You're thinking, so if we name the child this, it could become this nickname, which then could rhyme with this And so Charles, Charlie, Chuck, Chuck, Boba, no, we're not going with Charles yeah. And you do that, it's like, what about Sandy? That's a, that's a pretty name, isn't it? Yeah, that is a pretty name, didn't you date a girl named Sandy? Well, well sure, but, all right <laughs> Guess we're not going with Sandy, uh, and and you do that as parents, because even in our more modern culture, names carry some meaning; they have some significance. Uh, for my own children, it was it was excruciating. Uh, there was all kinds of, you know, I finally had the perfect name, at least I thought it was, and no, Lisa didn't think that was a perfect name, and vice versa. I even I, I went on, didn't tell this to the morning crew, but. Uh, I was particularly drawn, for some bizarre reason, to, uh, to one of the characters in the C.S. Lewis Space Trilogy, one of his lesser-known works. The uh, the main character there is named Ransom. I thought, ah, oh, that'd be kind of a cool name, but at least didn't like that. But it got so bad that we would literally visit cemeteries, and we would walk amongst the bones of dead people reading their... Chipped in words on stone to find names And never was I more excited Than in some cemetery outside of Attica There was the name Ransom But it still didn't take And so now our 10-year-old son Jaron, I can't imagine him not being Jaron. Oh, oh my gosh, if we'd had another boy We were out of boys' names So I, I don't know It would have been Jaron too uh, or something But our 8-year-old our daughter Brynn can anyone imagine her not being Brynn? Just, it just goes together somehow. So as important as, as names are in our day and age, they are even more so in the days of Jesus. In fact, for the next few weeks, we're gonna explore some of these lesser known days of Jesus. Today we're looking at the days surrounding his naming, which was an important part of, of his identity being shaped. But we forget sometimes that between the birth, which we've celebrated leading Advent, leading up into Christmas this past week, and his full inauguration of his adult ministry, that there were some sev- there were several monumental days. And so, in his culture, names carried some meaning as well. They weren't just arbitrary titles. We look in the Old Testament scriptures, and you have Abram. And Sarai, whom God called to be the, uh, the matriarch and patriarch of, of his people, Israel. And that when they formed that covenant, their names were changed to Abraham and Sarah. Jacob became Israel. He had crazy stuff, like the prophet Isaiah, uh, apparently wasn't thinking through, what's this going to sound like on the playground, but he names his sons the Hebrew words for, "Hurry the plunder, and a remnant shall return." Imagine that on the basketball team, you, know, you know. pass the ball, hurry the plunder, you know, remnant shower turn. you're in, you know, it's awkward, um, hard to rhyme naughty words with, but still, it's, uh... or other cultures recognize this as well, everyone knows Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right, but do you know what their real names were, their original Hebrew names, See, as they were um, captured, prisoners of war from the Babylonian Empire, that empire recognized that if we can change people's names and their identity, we can maybe change their destiny. And so their original names were Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah, which all have little pieces of, you know, L in Mishael, points towards God. The A-H sounds on the ends there might point towards Yahweh. They were names that referenced the one true God, Yahweh. And yet, they had their names changed to ones that honored the Babylonian false gods. Now, they were truly of the school of thought that, uh, that names would never hurt them. They went well beyond sticks and stones, right straight to, uh, you know, fire. Uh, which, don't do that one in the playground, but they pulled it off. Uh, and then we see it in Jesus. He has one of his disciples who's a bit... He's a bit hard-headed. He says to him, You're, you kind of remind me of a rock. In fact, that's what I'm going to call you, rock. How do you like that for a nickname? So he says to Simon, after Simon confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, he says, on your rock-solid confession, my church will flourish And so from this day forward, you're going to be called Peter, rock. So it's some fascinating bit of biblical trivia there (laughs) surrounding names. But why does that matter for us? If we start to look at this, these days of Jesus surrounding his naming and the shaping of his identity, the realization of his identity, why would that matter for us? Well, I think in our modern culture, in fact, this last uh, series we just finished up, The Advent Conspiracy, uh, we talked a little bit about how uh, one of the issues that we had running parallel to that was the need for clean water in Uganda. So we talked a little bit about that and admitted that for us, in, in Maslow's pyramid of needs, you know, food, shelter, water, that's not high on our list. Which means we have the luxury in some ways of asking those questions of of who am I? Why am I here? Though it turns out that that whole pyramid thing is is not quite true. That even those who are struggling for food, shelter, water, they ask the same questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Apparently that's a universal search. So the question of identity affects all of us. If it matters to you that when your family talks about you and says your name, that the connotation they have, if, if you care about that, this might be important. If when you're not around and your classmates and your coworkers say your name in a conversation, if it matters to you what follows that name, what explicative or, or glowing review, or often, in my case, a combination thereof. Um, you know, whatever you're, if that matters to you, then this idea of identity and who we are and why we're here here something we can talk about. And particularly this time of year, even for those of us, like myself, that thinks, think New Year's resolutions are often kind of goofy, we still all do it. We look at the year that we've lived, and the year that we hope to have, Say, who am I? You know, why am I here? And so let's jump into the scriptures here. We we're giving our computer folks a little bit of a break here, so you're going to need your Bibles. Unfortunately, we're going to park out in Luke chapter 2. And so there should be Bibles there under the chairs. You know, if you're using these red Bibles, it is on page 832, 833. And so a little background there. If you were here for the 5 o'clock or 11 o'clock Christmas Eve service, beautiful services, you heard some of the scriptures surrounding that nativity, that birth of Christ, of Jesus. And does anyone recall why Mary and Joseph found themselves in Bethlehem and what was going on there? Why, when she was very pregnant, uh, was she riding a donkey to get to this town? There's a census had been called. And so the empire had decided they needed to count noses. And to them, Mary and Joseph, and now the newborn Jesus, was just numbers in the eyes of the empire. It, it would never feel like that. Filling out your student loan application or uh, refinancing your house or applying for unemployment. Trying to get a 0% credit card to flip the other one that's just run out. And... Waiting for that two pounds of deli meat Because all your family's in town And you're, you're number 72 And they're on 12 It you know, can feel like numbers Well, in the midst of an empire That, that wanted to know Who can we tax? Who can we conscript as soldiers? If we have a war 10, 15, 20 years from now What babies being born now Can be our soldiers then? Jesus had a name We pick it up in Luke chapter 2 Verses 21 through 24. It says, after eight days had passed, so eight days after Jesus had been born, it was time to circumcise the child. And he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So what's taken place is, uh, for the first seven days, Mary, his mother, is considered ceremonially unclean. You know, all the mess of giving birth, Uh, in that culture, um, there was a seven-day waiting period. (laughs) And at the end of that, it was appropriate then for newborn sons in particular uh, to give them their name, and for sons uh, to take on that sign of the covenant that Abram, who became Abraham, received, circumcision, a very outward, physical, uh, concrete sign of a covenant people. And then what would happen is is they would still stay at the home. For the next 33 days, the mother would still be required to stay at the home. So when it jumps here, in verse 22, this is now day 40. So in the days of Jesus, day 8, now fast forward a bit to day 40. It says, when the time came for their purification, as Mary would go to the temple and be declared clean and do some sacrifices, Uh, According to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so we begin to see some of the identity of Jesus. He's now officially received his name. Which is a fitting name. Uh, It was a name that the angel told both Mary when she was about to conceive by the Holy Spirit, and then later told Joseph as as he was planning to quietly break off the engagement. Try not to embarrass her, but here she is pregnant, and he knows he didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, We see that in Matthew chapter one, verse twenty-one, where the angel says to Joseph, "No, marry her, be a father to this child." because she will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So that's the meaning of his name. It's, Jesus is the Greek form of, of the Hebrew name Joshua, or Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. Or again, on the basketball court, or playing some ultimate frisbee be my preferred one. Uh, his nickname would simply be uh, Savior. I'm open, Savior. Flick it over here. But then also, we see a bit of his identity culturally. You know, part of the scandal of Jesus, of God becoming flesh, is he had to choose to be part of a culture and a time and a place. It's called the scandal of particularity. That he didn't just show up as a full-grown, ideal man, like some Greek demigod. He was born. He was born into a, into a Jewish culture 2,000 years ago. And so his identity included all the parts that, that related to that, such as being circumcised, uh, going through the, the rituals, the sacrifices, but then beyond that we see part of his identity in the family that he is born into. We find out that this is not, by worldly standards, a family fit for a king, this is a peasant family. See, the common sacrifice, the preferred sacrifice that you would give uh, when you were doing all these things surrounding these monumental days of, of taking on a name and the cleansing and the purification would be a lamb. That's what most people would have done. Lamb's not real expensive. In our, in our currency, it would have been 3 to $5. But that was beyond their means. And so in Levitical law, there was a provision for those who were truly poor that if they could not afford, you know, five bucks for a sacrifice, there was the two turtle doves, which was about a quarter. And that probably stretched their budget as well. There's no entourage of of magi showing up just yet with bags of gold. That happens probably two to four years later. So they are on a budget. And so Jesus' identity, Yahweh is salvation, Savior. Born among God's chosen people. To very poor parents. And so Jesus now... His identity confirmed. He's given his name. He's recognized as part of God's people. And so I wonder, you know, I, I sometimes think of, of how much we miss out on as modern people. Because how many of us have had these experiences surrounding our birth where, where there are very clear cultural markers that say this is your identity, this is who you are, and I wonder if some of our modern and postmodern angst comes out of the fact that there's not a lot of that foundational identity. You know, I'm I'm part Irish and who knows what else. Married to uh, Cape Verdean, Portuguese, German, you know, and our kids we picked names because we liked how they sounded. You know, they they have some kind of meanings, uh, so maybe we need some help in having our identity established for us. Um, so there's, we joke sometimes about about the crazy uh, career choices people make, and you know, if someone has a particular name that rhymes or sounds like a career, you know, as kids in the playground, we might joke, "Oh, Dennis, you know, Dennis, you're going to be a dentist." But it turns out that that's actually somewhat true. That because we have so little other things to guide our identity, apparently, that what our name is, is statistically significant for the person we marry, their name, for the street we live on, and even for the career choices. So they did a nationwide search, found that 257 dentists um, were named Walter, 270 were named Jerry, and 482 were named Dennis. So if you're named Dennis, you are twice as likely to be a dentist than Jerry or Walter. So hopefully there could be some, some better guidelines for the choice that we make. And so in Jesus' life, here in these monumental early days, we have a few other key figures that come in and speak to his, his identity and who he's gonna be. Pick it up again in verse 25. And are introduced to Simeon. Simeon, whose name means in Hebrew to hear. And this was a guy who's been listening for a long time to the voice of God. And hear what he speaks into Jesus' life. Verse 25, Luke chapter 2. Says now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, the hearer. And this man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel that there would be a Messiah who would deliver them. He's been waiting for that. And the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people. Catch this next part. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. And for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed... Not merely because some old guy just took their baby. Um, In context, that was actually okay. (laughs) This was clearly a a very devout, uh, grandfatherly type who wants to do a prayer of blessing, and they gladly let uh, this saint, uh, because in their culture, they respected their elders. Um, We're working on that here at Artisan, but uh, got a little ways to go, probably. But they were amazed at what was being said about him. A light to the Gentiles? Who even cares about them? (laughs) Those people that oppress us, that made us just travel miles, give birth, you know, surrounded by cows and donkeys, and to count us for a census and occupy Jerusalem, that somehow they get to see the light of God as well? Amazing. Then it said, then Simeon blessed them, And said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be opposed. So that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. How many of us wish we had a Simeon in our lives? That came and spoke and said, here's God's plan for you. Now maybe our plan wouldn't be nearly as far reaching as, well, Jesus. Uh, we got the Jews and the non-Jews. That covers everyone. You know, ours might be a little more focused. But wouldn't it be wonderful to have people speak into our lives? I wonder if that's what the church is for. If that's what friends and family are meant to do. uh, To help us discover that identity. Tell us what our name really means. But Simeon does that. He does that for Jesus. And he says of Jesus' identity something that really starts to impact ours. As we begin to ask those tough questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose? In this season all too easy to have a hallmark picture of Jesus. It's this baby meek and mild. This kid's not even two months old and here's Simeon saying, don't be fooled by the packaging. This is going to be a contentious figure. He's going to demand of people that they make choices about the lives they lead. There's going to be some division, some heartbreak, and Mary, I'm sorry to say, he's going to break your heart. But it's who he's called to be. And the phrase that really jumped out at me was that this Jesus would force us to search our inner thoughts, and that he would reveal to us who we are, whether we wanted to know it or not. And so, have you let Jesus do that, this little baby born in a manger (laughs) this season? Have any of your innermost thoughts bubbled up to the surface? As you look back on 2008 and ahead to 2009, is there anything about Jesus that challenges you? If not... Maybe you don't really know who he is, and there's a sense where that's okay. It might be a process you need to be in. You're here. I think that's a good start. But Jesus calls us to, to pay attention to those inner thoughts, to do some self-reflection. But then there's another person who speaks to Jesus' identity. You pick it up in verse 36. And so he has Simeon, who says these amazing things about him. Then it also says in verse 36 that there was a prophet, Anna. Catch that. Not a prophetess, not the diminutive, you know, prophetess. Uh, a prophet, Anna. Anyone know what Anna means in Hebrew? Grace. We have some wonderful Annas here at Artisan who live up to, uh, to their namesake here. But this Anna, she was a prophet, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And she was a great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer, night and day. And at that moment, she came. So as Simeon is saying these amazing things about who Jesus is and what he's going to do in this world. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Stop there for a moment. It's interesting, sort of a sidebar here slightly, that in this culture, women and their identity was often tied up with what they could provide for their father or their husband, how they could carry on a family name, provide heirs. Uh, They were really second-class citizens. And the scriptures honestly portray that. That was part of the cultural packaging there. You can argue whether that was prescriptive or descriptive. But what I find fascinating, for those of you who are women here, And identity, certainly an issue for you, is that whenever Jesus showed up, women were treated differently. That they weren't called disciples, and yet they were sitting at his feet learning. They were the first on the scene, the empty tomb. And can someone explain to me what it is Anna is doing here? As she praises God and speaks about the child to all who are looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. What is that a description of? She's not teaching Sunday school. She's not running a woman's Bible study. She is preaching the gospel. Seriously. The first gospel preacher. Can women preach? It's another message. Or you could just pay attention. Um, and at that moment she came, began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when the family had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew, became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So in these early days of Jesus, we discover some amazing things about his identity. It we begin to get a glimpse, at least be challenged that we should probably figure out who we are as well. Simeon speaks to the fact that this Jesus will require of us a seeking and a searching of our innermost being, will challenge us, confront us, might even pierce our hearts. And then this end of this here I find rather encouraging where it says the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. Part of the greatest mystery that that the Christmas event represents is that God became truly and fully human. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that that Jesus emptied himself in some, in some way of, of calling on that godhood during his, his earthly ministry. And for those of us who are struggling to figure out what our identity is, what our name actually means, who we are, we should find some comfort in the fact that Jesus, in a very real sense, had to figure that out as well. Now, we don't believe here at Artisan that That he became the Son of God, that he somehow grew into that identity. No, he really was. But there's a mystery there that he went through the process. He had to learn how to walk, he had to learn how to talk, he had to go through puberty, adolescence, young adulthood. He was both who he was, I am, and who he became, all at the same time. And so, if Jesus had to go through some work, then we probably do as well. And so, here at Artisan, we want this to be a place where people can ask those hard questions of identity and purpose. We don't want this to just be a place where where we hear platitudes, where we celebrate wonderful rituals, but that we really get to the heart of why we are on this earth. So one of the ways that that got expressed early on as Artisan was being formed, we're now entering our third year as as a church community. There was a great debate on what kind of church we were going to be, and it would go to this question of, of how people were treated here with their identity and, and challenging folks to figure those things out. It wasn't a theological issue. We were fairly settled on that. We had some core convictions that, that we weren't going to waver on. It wasn't even stylistic issues that the, the debate was about. We Knew who we are, pretty comfortable in our own skin. Don't make a lot of apologies, probably even sometimes when we should, but we don't usually, for for the style of, of ministry here. The debate, the raging debate, was when people come through the door to a worship gathering would we be a church with name tags? You see, because there's two schools of thoughts, both of which have some pluses and minuses. One is that as people come to what is understandably a high-bandwidth experience, uh, a worship gathering is not the definition of church, but I think it is, it is fair to say it is a very important weekly event where in a very high-bandwidth way we experience God in worship and community. His word is preached, hopefully, well. But do you want to welcome people as, as anonymous guests or as new friends. And depending on your personality, you just said in your own mind, well, of course, you'd want to be a church where people could be anonymous for a while and just check things out. This whole name tag thing's creepy. And then there's others of you that said, well, no, you don't just avoid and ignore people. You welcome them. You know, you give them a big hug when they come through the door. You, I'm not a hugger, but some of you guys, I, I let hug me. Um, that sounded odd. Um, going to have to publish a list this week so people know what I was talking about. Uh, and we decided we're going to be a church with name tags. We were going to take the risk of, of knowing and being known in our first moments here. When you greeted each other and welcomed each other before, and I, and I challenge you to actually use names, there's something that happens when we hear our name, when we say someone's name. That when you go and grab some refreshments or sit around the dinner table tonight, if you said hi to someone and said, said your name... That's one extra bit of connection you now have. We thought that was important, that we would raise the bar a little bit. And I think some of the reason community happens in deep ways here is because of simple things like name tags. How crazy is that? But also we try not to be too creepy with it. And we do give people space. There's no one there with a clipboard writing on the name tag and then tagging you as you come in. Though we had that debate also. We came, we did. We're like, so do we, do we give them the option or do we tag them when they come through the door? You know, like some little calf, you know, staple their ear and they stagger into the sanctuary. Um, nah, you can, you can write a fake name, do whatever you want. Um, but we want this to be a place where we know each other and recognize that God already knows us. And that we're here to support each other in this seeking and searching of of making a name in a sense for ourselves, but of living out that identity of the name God has given us, of the identity He has called us to. So we can ask those questions. What would happen in your life if you really knew who God made you to be? What would happen if you pursued that? What kind of friend would you be? What kind of parent would you be if you really understood how God had made you? What kind of entrepreneur? What kind of follower of Jesus? Who would you be? And so I want to leave you with a couple questions. And this whole worship time and the message as well has somewhat intentionally been I wouldn't say light, but we did a lot of heavy lifting during the Advent season, and I didn't want to do one of those messages where I demand that you write out all your New Year's resolutions and you know nail them to the cross or you know, cry and okay, I mean cry if you want, but um, so this is more pre-resolution work. Um, what kind of identity you want to pursue? In fact, some of that heavy lifting we did uh, is worth mentioning. Uh, One of the challenges we put out during the Advent conspiracy really spoke to what kind of church we want to be. And so part of the conspiracy was we would flip the script for Christmas and we would give more of ourselves and use our money more wisely for those who genuinely needed it. And so we set a rather ambitious goal. The published goal was $3,000, which is over practically a third of our, of our monthly budget here, of, of what comes in in tithes and offerings. And that above and beyond that, we were going to challenge people here to, to do that, because that would translate into a water collection system that would provide clean water for over 200 families for 30 years. And we thought that was the kind of identity that we wanted to embrace. What was so amazing was you guys said, that does sound like a good idea. How about two? <laughs> you know, and so in the last week we blew past $6,000. I think we're, we're nipping at the heels of 7000 now. Uh, so you guys have already done some heavy lifting. So I'm not here to lay more heavy stuff on you. Um, but in your individual life, here's some questions you might ask yourself. As you leave behind 2008... And look ahead to 2009. And so maybe each day this week, leading up to New Year's and then the few days afterwards, till you hopefully come back here next Sunday, ask yourself these questions Who am I today? Who will I be tomorrow? Because if we've learned nothing from Jesus, I hope we've learned that every day counts. Who am I today? Who will I be tomorrow? Because every day counts. Let's pray. So God, we do come before you asking those questions. Looking to the example Of Jesus Of him taking on Our full humanity Making that Fully part of his identity Without diminishing As God in any way But being born as a baby In a culture, in a place Developing Growing The I am In a mysterious way Also becoming And so it's in that mystery, and by your grace, that we say these prayers. Who am I? Help me understand that, God, so that that's the person I can become. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So respond as God leads you. In the remaining time of worship, keep asking yourself that question, who am I today? Who will I be tomorrow? And for some, you may already have part of that answered. You know you're a follower of Christ. For you, the communion table is a very appropriate response to tear the piece of bread that is that sacrament of Christ's broken body to dip it in the wine or the juice that are labeled there, that sacrament of his blood, this table that represents in so many ways that sword that pierced Mary's heart, the sacrifice Christ made on our behalf. So if you know today that that's part of who you are, then I encourage you to approach that table. If you're not there yet, you're in a good place to be figuring that out. You may want to keep reflecting on who you are today. But could I challenge you to leave open the possibility that the answer might change for who you'll be tomorrow? And in fact, you can change it right now. And so coming to communion might be one of those first acts finding your identity in Christ. And so this time will be open. I think I'll hang out here in the front row if anyone feels the need to pray or talk with someone. But continue worshiping as God leads you. Amen. Amen.